I'm going to share a, a sentence with you here to, to begin, and it's a, it's, it's a sentence that you're going to hear repeated throughout the message as we look at the singularity of Jesus' claim, who he claims to be, the majestic claim of Jesus. Here's the sentence. The direction our lost lives were taking has been eternally altered by God. The direction our lost lives were taking has been eternally altered by God. We focus this message on one of the most powerful, dramatic of Jesus' I am statements in the whole Gospel of John. We're going to discover that the God who revealed himself in the ancient experience of Moses, all the way back to the second book of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, the God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush is the same God who continues to show us more of himself through Jesus. What we're going to find when we listen to what Jesus exclaims about himself this I am statement of his, it is so much more than just a personal declaration. We realize that he shares our nature. He speaks our language. He understands our homes. He sympathizes, empathizes with our heartaches, compre comprehends our hopes, and calls for our own daring then to follow him. And what you see here at the beginning of the outline is the flow at the heart of this heated dispute with the religious authorities of Jesus' day. Now, we've mentioned it. It's on your outline sheet. Let's just take a look here. You've got a couple of verses of accusations, then Jesus' promise, then their response, then Jesus makes more claims, and then those high claims of majesty when we come to verses 57 to 59 here, 56 to 59. And what we see is the climax they say, you're not yet 50 years old, they say to him. And you've seen Abraham? Then Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, just a basic first question here. Why would they focus on 50? You're not yet 50 years old. Well, 50, 50 was the age at which Levites, the temple workers, all kinds of people all around them during this conversation, 50 was the age at which temple workers retired from service. And so they're saying, look, Jesus, you're still a young man. You're still in the prime of your life. You're not even old enough to retire from service. How can you possibly be old enough to have seen Abraham? This is just crazy, is what they're saying. This is a crazy conversation. Now, it's at this point that Jesus makes this amazingly astounding claim, before Abraham was, I am. We want to see this as the fulcrum. This is the fulcrum of Jesus' message. This is an absolutely amazing statement of declaring his eternal nature. He's not simply saying that he was created before Abraham. He's not saying that. Well, I was created, a created being, before Abraham. There are some cults these days, that that's what they proclaim. That's what they teach. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not simply saying he was created before Abraham. He's saying he's always existed. He did not say before Abraham was, I was. No, he says, I, I am. What we see here is the fullness, the fullness of Christ. It's a bold affirmation of deity. It's what the Apostle Paul is asserting. It's in Colossians. This is from a paraphrase called The Message. I like the way this gets 
stated here. Everything of God gets expressed in him, in Jesus. So you can see and hear him clearly. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. When you come to him, that fullness comes together for you too. His power extends over everything, everything. Now, last Sunday, the message that Darwin brought to us from the earlier part of chapter 8 of John's Gospel, verses 12 to 20, this 8th chapter, Darwin told us directly that what those verses are saying is that we will die in our sins unless we believe, trust in Jesus. That passage of scripture, we will die in our sins unless we believe in Jesus. Now, this scripture, this morning, declares, here it is again, the direction our lost lives were taking has been eternally altered by God. How? What we see, first of all, is the singularity of his claim. For over 20 centuries, Jesus has absorbed the attention. He's haunted the conscience of the world. He's split history into two so that every event is dated with references to his coming, either before or after. From that day long ago, when he took a deadly cross and converted it into a glorious symbol of hope, his personality, his power, his, his very presence has been like a, a streak of gold just running through the centuries. Empires have gone down before him. Through his influence, great movements of reform have swept the earth. After all these centuries, we still baptize in his name. When a man and woman declare their love in marriage, it's his blessing we seek. When life is concluded, it's beneath his cross. It's his message that we find eternal hope and comfort. For millions, millions of people through the ages, he's broken the chains of sin. He's set them free. And he continues to put energy and victory into wasted lives. People who were without hope find hope because and in him. He supplies joy even in the midst of pain, peace beyond anything that this world has to offer, and hope beyond this world's problems and even its possibilities. Just think. Think about the, the world's great philosophers, the world's thinkers and, and teachers and authorities and religious leaders down through the ages. Think about all the ones you can name, Socrates and Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad and Moses. And then ask, ask, ask this question, what was their paramount concern? What was the primary thing that they were concerned with? It, wasn't to, it was not to fix attention on themselves, but to win acceptance of their message. That was the primary aim, to win acceptance of their message. But with Jesus, with Jesus alone, it is utterly different. He deliberately places himself at the center. He puts himself at the center of his message. His concern is not to teach some new truth, some different philosophy. It's to win devotion to himself. He doesn't merely claim to have found an answer. It's not just an answer to our human problems, our, our human dilemma. It's not just an answer to all of that. Instead, he claims to be the answer. Look at verse 58 here. Before Abraham was born, he declares, I am. Now, here in John, Jesus uses two distinct verb forms of the verb to be. One translation of his words could read, Abraham became 
but I was already there. Now this is, he's talking about a man who lived centuries before, some 1,800, 19, 2,000 years before. He's declaring his eternal nature, I am. Now we know that that's the, it's the same word that God spoke to Moses way back in Exodus. Now Moses is being called by God to go into Egypt to call the, the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew people, out of slavery in Egypt, to call them to follow him out of that as their leader, to call them forth. He says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So God here declares his own name. It's a self-declaration of who he says he is and always has been. The name for God in Hebrew here is Y-H-W-H, Hebrew consonants. There's no vowels. It's unpronounceable. In fact, it was so holy they never said the word. It was just Y-H-W-H. When they saw those words in their Hebrew scripture, they substituted the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. So in your Bibles, in the Old Testament, if, you, if there are times when you see Lord, and it's all L-O-R-D, and it's all in caps, that, that, the reason for that is because it's the Hebrew word Y-H-W-H. Okay? It's unpronounceable. Add some vowels, and you get the word Yahweh. Yahweh. It's a mysterious name. It's in Hebrew, the Hebrew infinitive hayah. It means to be or to cause to happen. When yah is added, it takes on this added meaning, this name, he who will make things happen. He who will make things happen. Now, in the third century BC, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek for the Jews who had scattered into the known world, this divine name, Yahweh, became Egoemi, E-G-O-E-I-M-I, Egoemi in Greek. I am, I am the one who makes things happen now. And it's this Egoemi that Jesus declares here and uses to define himself. It's, a, it's, it's just an amazing claim, and everybody who's listening to him that day knows what he's saying. Well, the meaning expands. It's not just the, the singularity of who he is. The meaning expands. The direction our lost lives were taking has been eternally altered. How? He, altered by God in the sinlessness of his life. Look at these next verses. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, and it could say truly, truly, the, the, it actually says amen, amen. Amen, amen, count on this as true. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Then verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And then 46, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? So Jesus say, is saying here very clearly, you cannot prove me guilty of any sin. In fact, I can set you free from your own sin. So Jesus is cutting through their, their self-sufficiency. He's cutting into their pride. He's laid bare the, the evil of their hearts, their lives. He's trying to shake them from their willfulness, bring them to their God-given senses, this awareness of what he's seeking to, to clarify. He longs to save them. This is absolutely profound. Now think about it. 
When I have given myself to sin, this applies to every one of us, you or I. When I've given myself to sin, whether in attitude or in action, I become sin's slave. When I give in to sin, whether it's an attitude or an action, I become its slave. I come under its control. I can say, you know, hey, hey, I do what I like. Hey, I do what I like. I do what I will with my life. Thank you very much. But the real truth is, when I'm under sin's control, I am not doing what I like. I'm doing what sin likes. And I'm a slave to the habits, the wrong pleasures, the pride the destructive power of sin, but the sinless, sinless Jesus came to set us free from sin. Look at Hebrews here. Jesus was tempted every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Now the author of Hebrews says, look at that, tempted every way. So temptation is not a sin. Well, that's good news. Anybody here never been tempted? No. Hey, okay. We got that one cleared up. Okay. Now, that's not sin, to give in to it. But Jesus, it says, was tempted in every way. And you say, no, not like I get tempted. Yes, just like every one of us gets tempted. And we could add the catalog and make the list, and there they are. And Jesus, it says, was tempted in every way. You and I come under the temptation of sin, and yet he resisted it. He never, never sinned. Look at how John says it. He appeared so he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So never once in Scripture do we hear Jesus confessing any sin. Never once do we hear him saying anything that he did wrong. He never comes to the disciples and says, Oh, fellas, I'm sorry. I really fouled up back there. I I need to ask you to forgive me. He never says that. Never does. He never needs or asks to be forgiven. He's tempted but didn't yield. Now, though he never sinned, he came to take our sin upon himself. Now, think about it. Think about this. Down through history, it's precisely the saintliest people who've been the most conscious of their sin. The closer a person draws to God, the more vividly they realize their own unworthiness and failure. The closer a person draws to the holiness of God, the more we realize I'm not that way. I am not good like God. I am not all-knowing. I'm not all-powerful. There are all those, all those characteristics of God that we could talk about. The closer, the closer we move toward God, the more we're conscious of our own unworthiness. The closer the vision of God, the deeper the prayer for forgiveness. Except with Jesus. There is no desperate sense of sin. He's not only different from all sinners, he's different from all saints. The religious leaders of Jesus' day knew that he was setting himself higher than any of their priests. All the sacrifices that were going around there in the temple where they're having this conversation, he's setting himself higher than all of the priests who are continually making sacrifices in the temple for the sin of the people. They knew what he's declaring. They hated him for it. And that's why they picked up the stones. And Jesus knew he was enraging his listeners. They were reaching the point of murder. And so he just disappears into the crowd. It's it's not Hollywood-style special effects. There's no razzmatazz to it. Divinely protected until his appointed time, what he calls his hour, all through John's gospel, my hour or my time has not yet come. Every time he declares that, he's talking about the cross. He knows where he's headed. 
But at this point, that time has yet not come. And he simply walks away. But one day, and it's about six months from then, it's about six months on into the future, one day, and it's not so far away, he will walk to the cross. And in that, what we see again is the direction our lost lives were taking has been eternally altered by God. How? In the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, Jesus used the phrase lifted up three times. When I am lifted up, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. When I'm lifted up, he uses that to describe the reality of his death on the cross. He uses it here in chapter 8. We've read about it earlier back in chapter 3. As we move through our series, we'll get up to chapter 12. He talks about it there, when I'm lifted up. But in this verse, he's saying that everything I'm saying to you now is going to be revealed Everything I'm declaring, you'll realize. It will be revealed. There will come an understanding, and you will know that I am. So Jesus is saying, I will offer myself. And it's precisely how the author of Hebrews states it. It's not on the outline sheet. In Hebrews 7, it just says, He sacrificed for our sins once for all when he offered himself. Look at 1 John here. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Not only for ours, but also for the sin of the whole world. The whole world. Only God can ultimately forgive sin. And here it's declared by and through Jesus. Only God can open the gate of the kingdom of heaven. And yet it's for certain that for millions upon millions of people down through the ages, Jesus has opened that gate, that way to God, that access. Only God can break the the power of the bonds and the power of sin, release us from the penalty of sin, and for millions upon millions, Jesus has done precisely that. He's changed lives down through the ages. He changed mine. He offers himself as the price of your forgiveness. You can take heart. You can take courage. It's fresh hope. It's power to face whatever comes, not on our own, But because of him, his sacrifice for our salvation, the direction, the direction our lost lives were taking has been eternally altered by God. How? Through the singularity, the uniqueness of his life, the the sinlessness of his life, the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross, and this, the salvation that we're offered through him. Now, what we read here is that Abraham saw and rejoiced. Look at this. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. What's that mean? Abraham, Abraham saw it and rejoiced. Jewish leaders at this point are, are witnessing and rebelling. Abraham saw and rejoiced. What's the contrast? What's, what's the difference? What does Jesus mean here? Well, he's talking language that his hearers would understand. The Jews had several beliefs about Abraham. He's the father of the nation. He's the father of the nation through which all nations, the promise, all nations would be blessed. He's the father of all the Hebrew Jewish nation. Jews had several beliefs about him. Could have interpreted Jesus' words in several ways. Abraham knew, it's recorded in Genesis 12, Abraham knew that in him all the families in the earth, of the earth would be blessed. 
He'd rejoice in the magnificence of that promise. Maybe that's a piece of what Jesus is saying here. Some believed Abraham had been given a vision of the time when the Messiah would come. That in that promise, somehow he'd also been given a vision that he's not only the father of a great nation, but through, through the Jewish people, through all of that flow of history, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come. Did he see a glimpse of Calvary? where the cross was, did Abraham see a glimpse of Calvary when his son Isaac was spared from sacrifice by God's grace? Now, Abraham believed that he was called to take his only son, Isaac, and to offer him up as a sacrifice before God. And this took place on Mount Moriah. And so Abraham takes his son Isaac and is ready to sacrifice him before God. And just as he's raising that knife... God stops his hand, and there's a ram caught in a thicket. And he takes that as the sacrifice in the place of Isaac. Now, did somehow in that experience on Mount Moriah all those centuries ago, did Abraham somehow understand God's grace in the giving of that sacrifice then as a sacrifice all those centuries later through, his own, through God's own son? The intriguing thing about this is that on the very place where Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, that is precisely where the Temple of Solomon was built in Jerusalem. And that's exactly the place where this conversation, all those centuries later, that's where that conversation between Jesus and the temple authorities is taking place in the verses that we're reading this morning. So all those centuries before this action takes place on Mount Moriah, and then the Temple of Solomon gets built, and then Jesus' conversation with the religious leaders takes place where that sacrifice was spared. It's amazing stuff. It's amazing, intriguing. When Jesus states that Abraham had seen his day, he's making somehow a deliberate claim that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the one sent from God. He's saying, you believe that somehow Abraham was given a vision by God in which he somehow witnessed the Messiah come. Listen, listen. It was this life. It was my life, me. It was, it was I that Abraham witnessed. Jesus is doing his best in this bold claim. And it's, it's the claim, the bold claim of our whole Christian faith. Jesus is the way to the heart of God paved through the sacrifice of Calvary, the cross. Look at a little verse from Acts. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Only this one. Now, the day that Jesus first made this bold assertion, the religious leaders were left with only two alternatives. Only two. Believe in him as the long-awaited Messiah or totally reject him and plot his death. That, were the cho that was the choice. And our choice, our choice is not really any different. Not any different. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or in the words of one author, a megalomaniac caught in a complex of assumed omnipotence and self-aggrandizement. Now those are some big words, okay? What's it mean? He's either who he says he is, or you can sum it down, he's loopy. 
will always end up, will always end up in, in one of two ways, one of two, either throwing stones at Jesus or throwing ourselves at his feet. When we bow before him, if we believe what he declares about himself as this ultimate I am, then, then all the rest of his statements will, will take on their own brilliance and they, they will flash like diamonds of truth for our life. We'll realize with Alexander McLaren, preacher of an earlier generation, he writes, his resources are inexhaustible, his power unwearied. His gifts diminish not the power which he has to bestow. He gives and is none the poorer. He works and is never weary. He operates unspent. He loves and he loves forever. Linger then, linger then on the majesty, the majesty of his claim before Abraham was, I am. Now, it brings us to a question. How do I respond to that? It's the question for every one of us. How do we respond? How do I respond? What will I do with him? If I can say, my Lord and my God, then I'll see his truth and power for every dimension of my life. Into our darkness, our need for direction, guidance, he says, I am the light of the world. Into our hungry hearts, there comes that fulfilling, I am the bread of life. He comes into our dread, our anxiety in a chaotic world, and he comes with all of his comfort, and he says, I am the good shepherd. He's the one who answers our uncertainties when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He comes into our agony over death, and he speaks a liberating hope. I am the resurrection and the life. It's the choice. It's the choice that confronts us here in this climax, this passage here in John chapter 8. It's the same choice Jesus' hearers had all those centuries ago. That day, that day they understood with clarity what he was saying. They understood with clarity everything that he was offering. But they met him with stones in their hands and a calcified hardness of heart. Question for us. How do we meet him? Let it be with belief in his claim Amazement at his life. Thankfulness for his sacrifice. Receiving his offer, his gift of salvation. When we do that, life will never be the same. It'll take on a dimension beyond anything that you could ever achieve or do or try to be simply on your own. He offers his life, and it's the offer for now and for eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may this truly be our prayer today. I'm speaking it, but may it be the prayer of every one of us. I believe who you say you are. My God, my Savior, my Lord. 
Amazed at your life, all you show me of your love and mercy. Lord Jesus, I am eternally thankful for your sacrifice on the cross for my sin. And so, either for the first time or today in renewal, I give my life to you, Lord. I give my life to you in grateful love, obedience, and service. You declared the I am, and I reaffirm that you are and will be my Savior and my Lord. Lord Jesus, may that be the prayer of every one of us here today as we come to this time of communion and love. We pray it all in your name. And all God's people said,